you don't have to be interesting to be funny, but I always think that's a little bit better for me. Just like in writing, like I like my writing to be about who I am as opposed to something just random. Welcome to the Art of Humanity. I'm your host, Jessica Ann. This is my podcast where you can listen for fresh perspectives with artists, leaders, authors, and your favorite entrepreneurs. You can explore creativity and consciousness, evolve your business with the art of humanity. Now, here's this week's episode. Welcome to episode 51 of The Art of Humanity. In this week's episode, I'm interviewing James Altucher for the second time. He's someone who does not need an introduction for many of you. He has a very popular podcast called The James Altucher Show, where he's interviewed guests like Tim Ferriss, Dan Ariely, Peter Thiel, Coolio, and Jewel. I stumbled on James's work during a really low time in my life back in 2012, and he pretty much saved my life. <laughs> I had just moved back in with my parents in Jersey and I was struggling as a new entrepreneur. I felt like I had nothing to show for my career and I didn't know how to run a business just yet. So I became borderline suicidal. But when I stumbled on his blog, I read every post and used his wisdom to apply it directly to my life. And it helped me to get out of a really dark hole. This is the power of the internet. So if you're going through a rough time, do yourself a favor, read his words on his website, jamesaltucher.com, to be uplifted and inspired. So let's get to this interview. James writes about what he's learned through the ups and downs of his life and career. And popular articles include how to be the luckiest guy on the planet in four easy steps. I want my kids to be drug addicts. You'll have to listen to this conversation to learn the hows and whys of why he does what he does, <laughs> including why buying a house may be a really bad decision for you. James and I also talk about our recent experiences with going minimalist and then buying things again, only to go minimalist and then buy things again. The struggle is real, friends, and we're keeping it real. In this conversation, we also discuss how to get out of your own way and prevent the same failures from happening again the psychological effects of our improved emotional, spiritual, and physical health, the experience of doing comedy and how comedy and writing have transferable skills. We also discuss an experiment that he did with 50 Shades of Grey called How to Satisfy a Billionaire, our shared experience of minimalism, buying, and purging, and why you should never have a mortgage, why the flow state is necessary to be a good writer, the deprogramming that's necessary as an entrepreneur, the benefits of having a traditional publisher versus self-publishing. Towards the end of this interview, we talk about the brand safety of working with a mainstream publisher, which is something that I'm shooting for right now. My new book is going live on a crowdfunding literary agency site called Publishizer. I'll put the details in the show notes on artofhumanity.io. If you liked my first book, you will love my next one. It's called Myth, Meaning, and Marketing, How the Emotion of Story Creates Your Reality, and it's available for pre-order. I'll put the link in the show notes. Also towards the end of the interview, we do a hot seat coaching session, which reveals a book that I wrote when I was seven years old, Nerd Alert. Yes, we dissect the very first book I wrote, which leads us into an interesting discussion on the benefits of living a slower lifestyle which is a recurring theme throughout my work. 
If Marie Kondo can make $30 million in coaching, I can certainly have a methodology behind how moving through life with a slow mindset is the path to success. So this methodology is called Quantum, and to get exclusive access to this program, DM me on Instagram or Twitter at beingishuman. Here's episode 51 of season 5, my interview with James Altucher. To get the links and show notes from this episode, go to artofhumanity.io slash episodes. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to another episode of The Art of Humanity, where we explore creativity and consciousness to allow you and your business to evolve. Today, I'm so thrilled to have with me James Altucher. He's back again. One of the very first guests I've interviewed on season one is now here in season five. James Altucher has started and ran more than 20 companies and is currently an investor in an advisor to over 30. But at one point, James lost everything. In a matter of months, his account drained from $15 million to $143. Depressed and on the floor, James realized that today's standard view of success comes with conditions and the only way to be truly successful and fulfilled is to choose yourself. Now, James Altucher is a best-selling author, successful entrepreneur, angel investor, chess master, and host of the James Altucher podcast. James, thank you so much for joining me on The Art of Humanity. Thanks for having me on. I'm almost depressed after that intro. I don't see it as depressing. I see it as very much exciting. And do you want me to... No, I I agree. I agree. That is the appropriate intro for me. Yeah, I know because in my previous interview with you, I read your long bio, which was amazing. And you've done so many cool things. And I'll post all of the amazing accomplishments in the show notes on artofhumanity.io. But this one kind of tells your story in a really, maybe too condensed, but I think it tells the story of you went from being a millionaire to someone that didn't have anything. And not many people in this world can say that. So I think it shows that you have kind of conviction in your story and how it really just shows how much of what you believe you practice what you preach. At least that's what I get from it. Yeah, yeah. And and look... It's not that you have to fail to learn in life. In fact, it's very unpleasant to fail and you don't want that to be a hallmark of the things you do, but you do learn a lot when things go bad because you sort of ask yourself, well, what was I doing wrong? What was I thinking? And how can I avoid that in the future? And it wasn't just like this one time where I had, so first off, I worked really hard. I built up this business. I sold it. It was years and years and years of effort and work. You convert that time, that effort, that blood, sweat, and tears into money when you sell it. And then I just blew it. And so it was not even as if I had lost all that money. It's like I I felt like I had lost all those years and I didn't know had I just been lucky and now I'm unlucky or was I ever going to make money again? Was I going to support my family? Like I really thought that I was just going to die. Like I thought my only choice was to the only way my kids would survive is if if I cashed in on my life insurance policy so that they would have money to survive. And I was just so depressed and horrified at myself. So I wish I had never gone through that. Like people say, oh, I have no regrets. I really do regret that. Like I wish wish my life could be the way it is now, but without having had lost all that money because I do regret that. And then the sad thing is for me is that I didn't really learn from my mistakes. Like it happened again and again and again. And so I realized okay, I was capable of making money, but I seemed to be not capable of keeping it. That was the hard thing. And I had to figure out what was I doing right on the way up and what what was I doing wrong on the way down? And there were 
you know, I had been through this so many times. Again, it was it wasn't just one or two or three. It was like four or five where the same thing happened. And I kept asking myself, why does this keep happening again and again and again? <laughs> it's so funny. The universe will keep giving you the same lessons until you learn it. <laughs> so yeah, it's true. And you access it in different like levels. It's kind of like the spiral on the way up. And you know, you can see things a little bit differently. And you know, from your past not to do that again, but it's a totally new situation, maybe a totally different environment but it's still you. <laughs> You're the same person. So it's like, how do you decondition yourself to not make those same mistakes again, knowing you don't want to make those mistakes, but at the same time, like you can't see yourself clearly. So it's just so interesting, the human dynamic of how we all work, because I'm sure you don't want to make those mistakes, yet we kind of are programmed to be the same person. So how do you actually get out of your own way and see a situation clearly when you're in it? I don't know if you can like, or you can say, to your, look, I think a lot of it is awareness. Like you could say to yourself, okay, the past five times I've been in this particular situation, the results were not good. Like sometimes we get really excited to be in a certain situation. Like, oh, this company is definitely going to be great. And these guys are so smart. And you can say to yourself, well, what happened in the last five times I thought that way? Well, I didn't really look closely enough about whether the people were really that good or ethical or their partnerships were good or how were they treating me? You start to be aware, like I've been in this situation before, or you know, a lot of times you get angry at someone who treats you poorly and you start to dwell on it. Like, why did that person say that? I should have said this in return, or I should have sent this email back, or I should have defended myself in a different way. And you find yourself dwelling and you could spend hours or days even, or you could wake up in the middle of the night thinking like, oh, why did that person do that? And you have to start recognizing, you have to like almost label the situation. Okay, I am now dwelling on this situation the way I often do. And you stop yourself. You can say, okay, well, what's something I could do more productively than dwell, than obsess on this situation? And obsessing is not going to do me any good at all. Okay, here's an example. Here's something I can do. I can find emotionally people who are better for me to spend time with. Instead of dwelling on this one person, I can uh, think of another situation that uh, makes me a little happier. and Or I could spend time with people who are better for me. And that's one ex thing I can do. Another thing that I can do is instead of dwelling on this person, I can exercise my creativity. Every day, everybody, not just me, but everybody should be as creative as possible at least once a day. Or I can focus on spiritually, like what am I doing to improve myself uh, spiritually today instead of dwelling on this person? Life is short. Every one day is that you spend dwelling or engaging in negative activities is really a day that you've wasted in your life. Like mm -hmm. it's helpful to think in terms of days or like I like to think in terms of summers. So I have, let's say I, have, I realize I have 20 to 30 summers left on this planet. That feels pretty short. That feels like a lot shorter than just saying, oh, I have 20 or 30 years. 20 or 30 years seems like a long time, but 20 or 30 summers seems, seems short. So you don't want to waste any of that time. It's all precious. And it's almost a cliche to say it, but it, but that's true. That's a really interesting way to look at life. Yeah, and because instead of spending this time, even this one part of this one summer dwelling on this one thing, like, oh, this business failed or this person treated me weird or whatever, I can say, oh, it's really important that I engage in some creative activity or that I physically improve. I mean, maybe instead of dwelling and lying around and watching TV and eating 
junk food, I, I can exercise or I could sleep or I could de-stress. Being stressful is very unhealthy, it turns out. Sure. So there's lots of activities I can engage in that are healthier for me. And I think too often we say, ah, I'm just going to be dwelling for an hour. What's the big deal? But we spend all our lives dwelling practically, mm-hmm. uh, or, or I often do. Or whenever I've made money, I found, you know, maybe this wasn't so good for me creatively. I would stop thinking about, you know, improving my creativity because I would say to myself, oh, he's such a genius. He's already made like a, a ton of money. And stuff like that's useful to focus on physical health, emotional health, creative health, spiritual health. I try to label every time I'm doing something negative, let's pull back and do something that's either improving me physically, emotionally, creatively, or spiritually. Mm -hmm. So important. And that's raising your consciousness 101, you know. And the last time we talked about this four years ago, we integrated kind of this topics into our conversation. Right, because it doesn't necessarily change for me. Like these are sort of universal truths that are important. Yeah. And it's important to keep, like if my ability to give myself advice that I take changes every year or a few months or whatever, then it probably wasn't such great advice to begin with. Like hopefully I'm now still doing the things that, you know, really helped me. Yeah. These are staples. And it's interesting because I actually interviewed a physicist in episode 45 of the season, her name is Dr. Teresa Bullard. And it's not actually just these like keeping our physical, emotional, psychological well that is important. There's actually new studies in consciousness that show that your body actually becomes more lighter. And there's actually psychological effects to our nervous system when we do this stuff. So it's not really just for the mundane getting through the day. It's really to uplift the whole of humanity. And you know, everything too is about energy like view view all life as and i'm not even saying this like in a kind of spiritual way but like view daily life you wake up the reason you sleep is because you're out of energy for the day so you sleep you rejuvenate you ha- you now have energy well now you have a certain amount of energy per day and eventually again you're going to run out of energy so you want to you want to make sure you're using that energy for improving your creativity and being useful to the people who love you and who you love and maybe coming up with new business ideas or new ways to make money or being or writing a book or or coaching somebody who needs coaching but if you use that energy in negative ways like oh i'm going to think about this person who's bad for me or i'm going to be jealous about this person or whatever then you've wasted your energy for the day mm. so Let's practice what we preach here. You know, it's always easy to kind of say to do these things, to have the emotional, physical, psychological, you know, foundation strong. How often do you practice what we preach? It's got to be every day. So every day at the end of the day, I ask myself, have I done my daily practice of working on my physical health, emotional health, creative health and spiritual health? And then I ask myself, am I a tiny bit better in the way that I'm practicing it? Because if you're 1% better every day, that's not that compound. It's not 365% better in a year. It's 3,800% better in a year. You're 38 times better in a year if you practice something, if you improve at something a little bit every single day. And that's a really important concept to, to know. Like if you practice the piano and you want to get better, if you're just a tiny bit better each day, 1% better each day, you're going to be great at the end of a year. Mm-hmm. 
Totally. And one of the things that I have noticed in your work is uh, your comedy. You've focused on comedy since the last time we talked. Yes. I'm super impressed because that's really inspiring. When you first started four years ago, you were just getting into the mix of it. And now you've really just really been everywhere from what I've seen. So it's been such a fun experience for me. I really enjoyed it. I've got a lot of pleasure out of it. So tell me what that was like, kind of getting outside of your comfort zone. You used to just write online for the world to see, and you were in your comfort zone online. And now here you are actually showing up in person, saying you're going to be here and there at different events, getting out of your comfort zone. Tell me what that experience was like for you, and how does that complement your work in the world? First off, it's you know, stand-up comedy is one of the hardest skills I've ever had to learn. And so, and I've learned not bragging when I say this, I've learned a lot of different skills. I've been everything from like a chess master to an investor to an entrepreneur to a writer. Stand-up comedy is just in terms of the sheer hours I've put into it so far is uh, is one of the hardest skills I've ever had to learn. And so it's really interesting to me from first a skill acquisition point point of view. Like I've I've always been interested in how do you learn how to learn? Like what are, how can you learn anything. How can you get better or be among the best at anything you you love doing and that you want to be the best at? So it's been very interesting from a skill acquisition point of view and testing out different ideas about learning, but also just, I don't know, having ideas and observations that are interesting and funny, but then being able to perform them in front of an audience of strangers, that's different than telling a joke with your friends. Your friends know your they know you, they know your comedy, they know your sense of humor, they'll laugh at your jokes. But a, a group of strangers in a dark room on a Friday night, they don't know you. They don't know who you are. They don't know why they should laugh at what you're saying. They're confused when you try to make them laugh. Like, it's an odd thing. And, you know, learning all of those skills, which have nothing to do with comedy, really, like stage presence, stage crowd work, likability, saying things that you know, a group of strangers are going to relate to. Most people don't laugh during the day. You know, the average child laughs 300 times a day. The average adult laughs five times a day. So adults don't usually laugh, but it's true. Adults do not usually laugh for, for whatever reason. Maybe they have more responsibilities. They're busy, whatever. I'm not even saying it's necessarily a bad thing. Maybe kids laugh too much. Who knows? But it's hard to get people to laugh. They're not, they're not used to it. It's a, it's an unusual scale for them. That's so interesting, I think. And then when you actually place everyone in that kind of, quote unquote, forced setting of a comedy place where people go just to laugh, it's kind of like, OK, now I'm going to have expectations and I am going to laugh. And then when you don't meet their expectations, it kind of can fall a little bit flat. So, you know, there are so many different things involved with that. The likability, saying things that people will resonate with meeting that group of strangers in a dark room on a Friday night with where they're at. They kind of had a rough week. So you're the person that has to elevate the consciousness in the room, whether it's through humor or through truth. I mean, why I think you're so interesting of a person to go through and do this comedy work, not just online, but in person is because the core of comedy is truth. So there's a real common thread that lies in your work that goes from writing the truth online to bringing that to a comedy show. I think that's really true. And I think the problems I've sometimes had in comedy is thinking that this was different than my other activities that I do, when in fact, it's just more of the same. It's just a different format. I'm not saying it's exactly the same, but it's, again, 
the skills are a little bit at least transferable. Mm-hmm, for sure. What has been the best experience of your life so far when you've done comedy? Just coming up with a new idea, I think it's funny, like it makes me laugh. And then saying it to an audience and realizing, oh, everybody thinks like this. Everybody has been secretly thinking this is funny and, you know, making them laugh and like hearing them laugh and having them respond to me in that way. And kind of like you're standing on the stage and you're saying ideas that you've thought of, like in the privacy of your home or wherever, and you worked on it and you tested it out. Maybe you've been on stage 50 times with this joke and now you finally have it figured out like why it's, you know, what's funny about it, why it's funny. And, you know, finally people are just viscerally responding to it. And that feels really good. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, also just the community of people, like it's, it really is like an art form. So comparing notes with my new comedic friends is really special to me. Like, I, I love that feeling of community I have with them. I just kind of want to hear like a the flow and the cadence, because I'm always just so curious, like how that comes out. Or is that something you have to like, kind of like build into as you go, as you flow through your routine? Yeah, I think it's like part of the show because everything has to sort of fit together. Like there's nothing that's in isolation. It's all really like one umbrella act that's fitting together. But I can tell you like topics that I'm interested in. So I have one thing that I think is a little different than many comedians, I crowdsource what the audience should have me talk about. So I say, hey, I'm either going to talk about money or relationships or all the other things in the world that I hate. So when I have them, when I crowdsource it like that, it kind of gives them agency. Like they think that they have chosen what I'm talking about. So it makes them feel more involved. So it gets them a little bit more likely to be responsive to the jokes that come after. The other thing is, is that it also makes them think, oh, is he just making it up now? Depending on what I, it doesn't feel as much like an act to them. It feels like more like conversation because they think they've chosen what I'm going to talk about. In fact, they haven't really chosen. You know, I carefully pick the three topics and almost always whatever item I say last is what they're going to agree to. So I already know what they're going to pick. And, but again, I've kind of not quite manipulated them, but I kind of have a sense of how the act is going to go. And I, and I've kind of made them a participant as opposed to just an observer. So I think that's something I do that's different from a lot of comedians. You always want to figure out what can you do that's unique and different, you know, and then I write new material all the time. So I think a big danger for comedians is to have the same material over and over and over again. And I think that's, then it starts to feel like an act as opposed to, you having a a dialogue and a conversation with the audience. So I'm always kind of coming up with new things. But like lately, something that interests me is, you know, everybody's getting their 23andMe results. On my results, it showed up that I was partially West African. And it tells you on 23andMe, it tells you the, the date, basically the decade that your ancestry sort of mixed. And I kind of always think that Everybody thinks that, oh, this is a data point that's interesting. But what's the story behind that data? Like in 1763, how was it the case that one of my ancestors was 100% West African and then now they're not? Or, or, I mean, you know, how did that actually happen? There must have been a story behind it as opposed to just data. It's kind of interesting to me that 
you know, we're in this data fixated society, but behind every piece of data, there's a story. And so coming up with a joke behind that concept was was interesting to me. Yeah, definitely. That's really interesting. I think that and it speaks to like where the culture is at, too. You know, I think we're all so interested to peel back the layers to know where we come from. But at the same time, don't let the data, don't let those companies know anything about you. <laughs> so there's such a paradox with that in and of itself. Yeah. And there's and there's always got to be a story behind the data. And, and companies too often just focus on just the data. Yeah, for sure. It's interesting because, you know, we're talking about consciousness and in the season. And I think that you know, comedy and just laughing is just so pure. And it's just such the essence of who we are. You know, as we get older, it's so easy to get all serious and we have to pay our bills and pay the mortgage and all that stuff. And it's also interesting to see, like, you know, there's a lot of comedians and they're fine comedians who will be funny, but it's not necessarily to me saying something super interesting. So I really like to find what's interesting out there that I could comment on. And again, you don't have to be interesting to be funny. But I always think that's a little bit better for me, just like in in writing. Like I like my writing to be about who I am as opposed to something just random. Yeah. And I think that's the essence of everything we do. You know, it's like people can tell when you're putting on a mask and trying to be something that you're not. So when you show up on stage, you're the same James Altucher that shows up on your website. You're the same person through and through. And I think that you show up and you tell it like it is and boom, like that's going to resonate with people. I agree. Yeah. And I think that's how we elevate our consciousness. You know, it really goes down to just being true to who you are. And, you know, I think it all comes full circle, at least how I'm kind of looking at your work, because people often stumble on your work after they get fired or they're in a job that they don't want. And when they find you, you're kind of a breath of fresh air. You're a beacon of hope because you pretty much tell people that even if you still have a job, you should quit anyway, because sooner or later they're going to fire you or downsize. And Through all of this, it's kind of just like taking off your masks. Like, why do you have to go into an office questioning the status quo? And there's so much that's not true that we subscribe to and we sign up for since we're young that it's all about just deconditioning what we're told. And it's so refreshing to kind of hear from you and just to see the evolution of your work coming full circle now, because the essence of it is really just becoming more of who we are. At our core. Yeah, my, my danger is like I just I always wrestle with this creatively. A lot of times my readers from way back, they like to hear about this story, like, oh my gosh, he went broke. I've been broke. How did he make it back? How did he bounce back? What's the psychology of bouncing back? Like, is it possible? What did he do? And you know, there's only so many times I can write that story. So I always have to kind of literally reinvent myself even creatively like what's a story that's also interesting to people that I could tell so that I could write something new that's always kind of a creative challenge for me yeah then what is a current situation like where are you at right now let's just drop in just be like how are you wrestling with the current situation that you're going through and how do you plan on reinventing yourself I don't know and I'm well I think a part of it is kind of you know, looking at things in this kind of with this comedic lens. And also, you know, that's an area where I'm not necessarily struggling, but it's like a new area for me that I'm exploring. And, you know, I think always there's struggles in life and losing money is a big one. But, you know, there's struggles in relationships, there's struggles in family, and there's struggles in business. And also there's like, what what have I learned from 
different business leaders, you know, or other people who inspire me. Like, I think that's sometimes very interesting. So the answer is I don't really fully know. I'm just always trying to figure it out. Like what will be more creative for me to do? So who are some of the people that are currently inspiring you these days? Uh, definitely a lot of it is like comedians. And I, I'm definitely inspired a lot by that. And, you know, people who, not so much business people, I don't really get inspired by other entrepreneurs that much, but people who've been through hard experiences and, and people who've made the decision to go outside the boundaries of normal everyday life. Like if someone does some unique act of, kindness that's usually very inspirational to me. Or one of the other ways I challenge myself is I always try to experiment with things as cheaply as possible. So I try to do things that nobody else is doing. And as an experiment, if it doesn't take too much time, doesn't take too much money and is creative. So can I give you an example? Yeah, I'd love it. So I haven't talked about this example with anybody. I, I kind of just did this experiment, but I took the book 50 Shades of Grey and I basically hired somebody from, I don't know, India or Malaysia or whatever to uh, take every single word and just replace it with a synonym. So it's the exact same book as Fifty Shades of Grey. It just happens to be all synonyms. Like instead of saying she took the tests, it might say she ran to take her examinations. And then I published it uh, and then I got a book cover made and for very cheap, I used 99 Design, and then I published it on Amazon. And so this was really just an experiment to see what would happen. And like most experiments, nothing very interesting happened. And it was just something I wanted to try. And, you know, stuff like that, I'm always trying to think of new new things to do that I could experiment with. <laughs> wait, wait a second. So you put out a book was it the same title as well, Fifty Shades of Grey? No, it was um, Story, or no, How to Satisfy a Billionaire. Oh my God, that's hilarious. And then you just reworded every synonym in there with a different word. So it was a new book. It looked like new content. So, And I did it like a week ago and 85 copies have been sold, but then it seems to have stalled. Like I think whatever, you know, it's no longer like a new book. So whatever algorithm was pushing it, ended. So it's like not selling any books right now. Like I didn't sell any books today. So I think that experiment's over unless I try to experiment further. Like maybe I advertise it in some way and see if that experiment works. But I like to just, I like to just try things that may or may not end up in a story later. And that's an example. And are you the author on that book? No, um, a fake author, a fake author. Jackie King. <laughs> Got it. That could also be the reason why, too. I mean, if you were the author, then people would probably sign up for your next book. <laughs> Specifically with my experiments, I keep them as uh, as neutral as possible. That makes a lot of sense. Are you actually in the process of writing any real books in the future? Oh, yeah. I just signed a deal with HarperCollins to do a new book. What's that called? I think it's going to be called Try This. And it's basically this idea that anything you want to try you should be able to try. And here's how to get good enough so that you can try it. If you want to try stand-up comedy, you should do it. And here's here's some techniques for how to get good at something. Or if you want to start a business, here's kind of uh, guidelines about the best way to start a business quickly and cheaply and you know as an experiment so you can learn. I love it. That's really important. 
So, yeah, I think it really just comes down to the simplicity of trying new things. And I know when we hung out in L.A. about two years ago, you were kind of living that nomad life. And you go through different phases, as I do, as we all do, where, you know, we go through minimalism and it's like, okay, how much do we really need? I moved to California with only two suitcases and my dog to start over again. And, you know, I think two years ago you were kind of doing the same thing, starting from scratch. Yeah. So where are you now? Do you eventually start buying new things and then accumulating and then having to purge again? Where are you right now with that whole process? Yeah. So what happened was is that I basically had 50 years worth of items or 40 years worth of items and I threw everything out. I didn't Marie Kondo it. Like Marie Kondo always says, oh, look at what you love. And I didn't do any of that. I just looked at what I just threw everything out, 100%. And I started living just in Airbnbs. And I did that for like three or four years. And it was, again, it was an experiment. It was an interesting experience. Some things I enjoyed about it, some things I regret about it. And now, since then, I've bought an apartment and, and not bought, sorry, I would never buy an apartment. Yeah, I, I rent. <laughs> yeah, Probably not I, buying. I, yeah. I rent an apartment and I'm happy to have a place now that's like one place I consider home. Yeah, that's so funny because you definitely wrote a few articles on why you should never have a mortgage, which I totally agree with that philosophy. The whole concept of it just does not make sense to me personally. I know everybody's different, but you know, you advise against it for many different reasons. I find that it's even hard for me to sign up for a one-year lease, let alone a 30-year mortgage. <laughs> so Yeah, I would never own a home in the United States. It's insane. Would you own a home anywhere else in the world? Yeah, because I think in some places, the economy is improving and there's actually a financial reason to maybe buy. So I might own a home. Like, for instance, some countries you can't invest easily in companies in the other country, even though the economy is growing fast. And sometimes it's not easy to invest even in the stock market, but you can usually invest pretty easily in the home because they want Americans to buy homes in their countries. And so sometimes as an investment, it's not a bad idea. But in the U.S., it's never a good idea. Yeah, I hear you. So going back to the concept of experimenting, are you ever satisfied? Because this is a common theme across many different creatives where there's always something to learn. There's always something to explore. There's always something new to experiment with. And for instance, right now, for example, I live in an amazing home in Sausalito. Everything is quote unquote like perfect, yet I'm still trying to like rip the band-aids off. I'm still experiment like I'm honestly always just trying to dive in deeper to what I don't know and to learn. And I find that that's just a common thread through a lot of the creative work. Are you satisfied right now with your life? And if not, like what are some common challenges or themes that you're working with right now? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think it's a little too easy for me to say, oh, yeah, I'm really satisfied with my life. I think actually there's a lot of things I want to improve and get better at. And I'm trying to balance family, work, creativity, this daily practice that I like to practice every day. I, sometimes I don't have enough time in a day to do what I really want to do. So that's often frustration for me. Interesting. Yeah, I think that there's like a baseline level of happiness, quote unquote, like, I don't even like using the word happiness, because it for me, it's more about kind of satisfaction or contentment. And when we achieve those baselines, we put in the work to do the meditation, physical activity, we make sure that we're being a good partner, a good friend, we are showing up creative every day in some way, shape or form. That's just the baseline. And that in and of itself takes one hour out of my day. 
if that. Like, that's actually the minimum. So again, it's about like energy. Like it's so easy to expend wasted energy. And we don't think about it because, oh, it's just today. I'll watch 100 episodes of Game of Thrones. But if you think about it over time, you just end up doing it more and more. And, you know, that's really dangerous. And so I always have to make sure, am I expending energy in the right places for me? Mm -hmm. Totally. And I think it's important also, too, to know like when to self-correct, you know, like you said, like just to be mindful of your habits and stuff like that. But at the same time, at least for me, I kind of can access this place where like time doesn't exist. Does that ever happen to you where you're just either so in flow and then time becomes nonlinear because you're so deeply who you are, your essence, that opportunities just show up that would normally take 10 years or something like that. And they kind of just land at your door because you're just bathing in this frequency of love and all these higher energies. Does that ever happen to you, James? Yeah. And the real challenge then is making sure that you get back into that flow because what usually is happening then is that maybe you're not respecting your time enough and your creativity enough that you're really giving yourself the time to be in flow. Yeah, I mean, I think I have the opposite problem where it's like, I keep using the word flow, but you're just so in this energy field of just creation. Like writing is a great example. Like in order to write well, you have to be really absorbed into it. And you know, one thing I noticed when I write some, I've been writing every single day since like the 90s and doesn't necessarily make me good or bad. But one thing I notice is that when I write something that I think is good, I don't care at all about how many likes it gets. You have to always be respectful of your energy and you can't waste it on things that are spurious, like watching 27 episodes of Game of Thrones in a day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's just for me and for many entrepreneurs out there, I think that's like rule number one that you learn as you start your business. You know, it's very basic knowledge, I guess, but it's something that's, you know, maybe difficult for people to implement. Yeah. And it's not saying never have fun or never enjoy what you're doing, but again, always just being respectful of that energy has a price, has a cost. Mm -hmm, for sure. I think E. Cummings said to destroy is always the first step in any creation. So we're constantly in that programming of deprogramming ourselves, at least as an entrepreneur, you're constantly kind of deprogramming the way that you see life and reality so that you can access the next better version of you. Yeah, I always view like how if your blood stops, you have a heart attack. Like if there's some problem that's preventing your blood from going to the heart, you're going to get a heart attack. And I always view that there are these invisible bodies that are all connected to each other. There's your physical body, there's your emotional body, there's your creative body, there's your spiritual body, and they have kind of this invisible blood flowing from body to body. And if there's a disconnect there, you're also going to have kind of almost like the version of a heart attack, what would be the equivalent of a heart attack. And I've really seen that that's true for me, at least, that if I'm not around people who are healthy for me, if I'm not doing my creative best to be the best person I could be, then all these things will cause me to suffer. Mm -hmm. I think it's so important to constantly be knowing what is the best environment for you, kind of peeling back the layers and figuring out what works for you because everyone is so different and unique. Yeah. But what is a common thing theme, though, is that people need to be around people who are good for them. You need to be around healthy influences. People need to be creative every day. People need to have some sense of spirituality in their lives so that they give up trying to control the things that they can't control and so on, as opposed to, again, like trying to control things you can't control, like how someone thinks about you 
or not being creative every day and letting that creativity muscle atrophy or not being around people who are emotionally healthy for you. Like you need to be around people who have your best interests at heart all the time. You can't just say, well, I'm only going to be around these people now until I make it big and then I'm going to get in shape or then I'm going to change my life. Like your life has to be changing all the time. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the hardest things to learn. It's really about saying, knowing when to say no. And I think I went through a phase where I was constantly saying no to a lot of different people. And then you realize, okay, maybe I'll start saying yes. So then you say yes, and it, everything's an experiment. And then you see what happens yeah. and say yes. So it's always that fine, delicate dance that we do with learning who we are and how best we're meant to show up in this world. So Right. And I think you're right. Everything is an experiment. And that can't be ignored. Like, it's really important to constantly be experimenting in your life. Mm -hmm, for sure. Yeah. So I'm curious because I know that you've preached previously about self-publishing. And you mentioned that you have a book coming out with HarperCollins with the possible title of Try This. What made you want to go with a publisher? Yeah. Again, I do think people should self-publish. Like, I think it's a great way to essentially choose yourself and not let the big publishers sort of influence your creativity. But every now and then, for myself, I wanted to be in bookstores again. And publishers do some things well, which is one thing is getting you into a bookstore. When you self-publish, it's much harder to get into a bookstore. So I kept seeing my friends who publish in bookstores. And even though my most successful book, Choose Yourself, I sold over a million copies and it was self-published, I wanted to be in a bookstore again. So I decided, okay, I could do that with a mainstream publisher. doesn't mean I'm against self-publishing. I still think everybody should self-publish because you have so much control over marketing and deadlines and when it comes out and pricing and content. It's such a great experience to self-publish. But for me, I wanted to, again, try mainstream publishing. Amen. Yeah, that's definitely a great reason. I think I actually had a unique situation when I published my book back in 2016 my book was self-published, but I also had the opportunity to see it in a bookstore. A month after it came out was South by Southwest. And every year, Barnes & Noble has a stand during South by Southwest. So not only did I get to self-publish, but I saw my book in a bookstore. It was only one bookstore, and it was only at South by Southwest. But I'm still pinching myself to this day that that was possible. But I definitely see what you're saying, because for my next book, I want to be in bookstores as well. So I think that you're right. I think the only way to get there is to meet to sync with a major publisher these days. Yeah. Even though I think the stigma of self-publishing doesn't exist anymore, I think there is something nice about the brand safety of working with a mainstream publisher. I think there's something real to that. And that excited me as well. So sometimes you need a little bit of that brand safety injection. Do you find that you still are able to maintain your creative freedom? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've had no problems with the publisher or anything. So that's not been an issue at all. That's awesome. So what else is next for you? You have this new book coming out. You have a regular podcast. You are living in New York City with your wife and your family. Well, I'm working on a TV show and I've been in LA a bunch of times pitching it around to networks and one network is pretty positive on it. And I'm very excited about that. And can I tell you what it's about? Yeah, I'd love that. So it's called, I Will Make You a Millionaire. And I take random people off the street, basically. And within six months, the idea is they're going to become a millionaire if they follow my advice exactly. And can you give some of that advice? Well, it depends on the person. 
But a lot of it is I've done it for myself many times. When I made money, I went totally dead broke, starting with from scratch with no network, no contacts, no nothing. And I've made my money back. And so a lot of it's just based on my own experience. And again, a lot of it is advice like buy this stock or do this type of business. A lot of times people just don't really know where they're wasting valuable energy. And that energy is so powerful that once you stop wasting it, then I can work with them on coming up with the right ideas for them. Like I'll ask people about what they're interested in, what their background is, and so on. So once I've done their kind of audit of their life of like where they're wasting their energy or where they're expending their energy, then I could start looking into, well, what is it you love? And here are some ideas on how to monetize that. I kind of almost do it Socratically, like kind of let them come up with ideas and then we analyze the ideas together. And the only reason I say I've done this with a bunch of people already and it's worked. So that's what gave me the idea to actually do this for fun as a show. And yeah, I think it's going to be a fun show. I love it. So can I ask what advice you'd give me? Because I know I can't always see myself clearly as I'm sure many people can't. What would you tell me then? Well, I would start asking you like, first off, what were you interested in? And I'm just making this up with each person. The questions are different. But like, what were you interested in when you were like 13 years old or 12 years old? I've always loved writing. And yeah. <laughs> and what did you do with that interest? I wrote a book and I write every day and I'm writing my second book. <laughs> what did you write about when you were 13? I wrote my first book when I was seven, and it was called The Eater That Couldn't Catch Ants. And it was about embracing the slower pace of life. And at the end of the book, he was upset at himself that he couldn't catch ants like all of his friends, but he found a worm, and the worm was slower. He was able to get it, and it was more tasty. So he ended up embracing a worm-eating lifestyle. <laughs> I love that. And what attracted you about the worm thing? I think it's symbolic for how I live today. Everyone's running around frantic like ants. And I'm like, hey, I'm just going to go hang out with this worm over here because he's a little slower and more my pace, but he's loving life a lot more. It's almost like minimalism, but with time. Totally. Exactly. And there's something interesting there. Like, I don't know. And this is not necessarily about being a millionaire, but maybe there's a book idea just called Slow and like the benefits and the research on what living a slower lifestyle could do. And almost like a Marie Kondo kind of minimalism. And, you know, Marie Kondo has made like $30 million coaching people how to Marie Kondo, how to be Marie Kondo coaches. And so kind of having, and I know you've been interested in like life coaching and stuff like that. And like kind of almost having a methodology behind the concept of slow and how doing things with this particular mindset could often be the fastest way to achieve great success. And I think there's something to that. So that's even outside of being a millionaire, but just a way to think about this in a business way. Maybe there is some kind of success-oriented methodology there. But also, obviously, you're interested in monetizing this podcast. What's the second book that you're working on? The second is Marketing, Myth, and Meaning. That's a working title right now. It's really just about the myths and the meaning that make up our lives and how marketing ties into everything. What's some of the myths? I should have you on my podcast. What are some of the... There are so many myths. I mean, it goes deep. I mean, it's ingrained in us since we were little, you know, going back to Joseph Campbell and all of his storytelling that he uses through his myths and really integrating all of that into our current lives because there's so much wisdom from these stories that we tell ourselves when we're young, as you mentioned, that we can bring into our lives, not only make money, but live a more satisfying life. Yeah. Yeah. So have you thought about applying them as far as like being a marketing agency? Definitely. Yeah. I have this new concept called embodied marketing, 
where you're actually embodying these core concepts and applying them into our day-to-day lives and rituals and how that has an effect on our lives and our mentality. And how's that going in terms of building like an agency? It's just starting. I mean, I got this idea about a year ago, and now I'm really finally executing it and kind of coming up with a big vision and plan for the future. So I think you kind of have it there. Like there's this methodology around slow plus marketing myths. You find somebody who's willing to put themselves in your hands for this new agency that you're developing. You write the book to kind of establish a brand for yourself in the space, whether it's marketing myths or slow or both and start speaking at conferences, which is not hard once you start writing books and publishing them. I've built an agency myself. Once you start having clients and word of mouth spreads, it's not that hard to keep going and build a business that someone will spend millions of dollars buying. And I don't even need to give you advice. You're already like on your way towards making a million. (laughs) Yes, definitely. I like it. I'm already embracing that millionaire future. So I think it will happen. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, it's really all about mindset, you know, and which you've just been so helpful throughout the years and helping me and many others get there. So I really value your advice, James. No problem. I don't know if I gave anything useful, but that's definitely the first ways I would start to think about it. Definitely. Yeah, that's great advice. I love it. So yeah, stay tuned. More to come. (laughs) Yeah, thanks so much for joining me. And is there anything else you want to share with listeners? I have nothing to promote or anything like that. I'm just very happy you have me on the podcast. I'm glad things are going well, and I I hope things continue to go well. And looking forward to hearing your next successes. Definitely. I'm excited to keep you updated. There's always so much change. Whenever we connect, it's always like a million lifetimes have happened. So I'm grateful to connect with you right now and excited to connect with you in the near future. Excellent. Well, thanks so much, Jessica. I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you, James. You made it to the end of this podcast. This means the world to me. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Feel free to hop on over to my podcast website, artofhumanity.io, for show notes or past interviews. You can also message me on social media. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. My name is Jessica Ann, and my handle is beingishuman. That's B-E-I-N-G-I-S-H-U-M-A-N. I'd love to hear from you and learn more about what you've enjoyed from this episode. If you really love this podcast, I'd highly appreciate it if you went on Apple Podcasts right now and left a review. It helps way more than you know. You can also share this episode with two of your friends who you think would enjoy it. Let's get the Art of Humanity movement going. Thank you for listening. Until the next episode, evolve your business with the Art of Humanity. Listen, explore, evolve.